Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. If you're enjoying this podcast, please follow us using your favorite podcast software. Today's program is brought to you in part by the financial support of our listeners. You can support the show on a one-time basis by mailing a donation to Adam Graham, P.O. Box 15913. That's P.O. Box 15913, Boise, Idaho, 83715. You can also become one of our ongoing Patreon supporters for as little as $2 per month. And I want to welcome Anton as our latest Patreon supporter at the Seamus level of $4 or more per month. Thank you so much for your support, Anton. Now it's time to not play an old-time radio program for you. Let me go ahead and explain. We're returning to the order of episodes we were in before Christmas. And actually, after the truck hijackers, there are seven straight weeks of lost episodes. By far the longest gap in the Dragnet radio show and make up the vast majority of missing episodes. However, many of these programs were turned into TV programs and did not have their copyright renewed, so are in the public domain. I found that the TV soundtracks of Dragnet episodes that were originally written as radio programs still work as audio only. It's a bit different with Dragnet episodes that were originally written for television. I looked into playing the audio version of The Big Thief, but I found that you really did need the visuals for that. But again, those that were written for radio work fine as just uh, listening to the soundtrack. So I want to bring you as many of the stories that were done on radio. So for the next two weeks, we will be bringing you TV soundtracks, so the audio of the TV shows, and commenting on them afterwards. And we've got another one that we'll end up playing probably in about a couple years, so not going to happen again soon. Uh, the TV episode came from a period in season one of the Dragnet TV series where Barney Phillips was playing Friday's partner, Sergeant Ed Jacobs. So with that little advisory, let's go ahead and take a listen to today's uh, episode. The original air date of the TV episode was June 19th, 1952, of a radio script that originally aired October 20th, 1949, and the title is The Big Lamp. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. The fourth largest city in the United States. It's still growing. Every year we get more of everything. Population, transportation, stores, crime, buildings, and more crime. More than 50,000 major crimes were committed last year alone. That means 50,000 criminals. 
They range from professional killers to petty thieves. A lot of them are experts. Every year they seem to get better at their jobs. And the better they get, the harder I work. I'm a cop. It was Tuesday, April 28th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of safe detail, burglary division. My partner's Ed Jacobs. The boss is Captain Wisdom. My name's Friday. It was 2.16 p.m. when we got back to the Hall of Justice, Superior Court, Department 38. On January 4th, the safe in the Grant Harrell building was burglarized. It took us weeks before we narrowed down the suspects to one man. He was an ex-con, a two-time loser. It took more weeks of interrogation, gathering evidence, long hours in the crime lab to build our case against him. It was a big job, a hard one. He was guilty. We were convinced of it. We had one step to go. It was the jury. We had to convince them. Got him, Joe. Did you testify yet? This morning. How'd it work out? Physical evidence tied in perfectly, all six points. Jury impressed? Hard to tell. Buckley's got a smart lawyer. I was talking to the assistant DA. The case ought to go to the jury late today. What's coming up next, Neil? I'm due back on the stand when this recess is over. There's the bailiff. The Superior Court is again now in session. Remain seated. No smoking, please. Could show that the jury, the defendant, and his counsel are present. Prosecution may proceed. If it please, Your Honor, I'd like to recall Leland Jones to the stand. Leland Jones, take the stand. Be seated. If I may, Your Honor, for the benefit of the record, state that Leland B. Jones has been duly sworn. That counsel for the defense has stipulated that he's a forensic chemist attached to the Scientific Investigation Division of the Los Angeles Police Department and that he's qualified to testify as an expert in the case. Proceed. Mr. Jones, earlier today in this court, you heard the testimony to the effect that Conrad Buckley had identified these exhibits as his own. This wool jacket, this pair of trousers, and these shoes, did you not? I did. This morning, Mr. Jones, you pointed out these pertinent facts about these articles of clothing. First, People's Exhibit 1, the... Red paint smudges on the soles of the shoes. They match the paint on the ventilation pipe, which leads to the third floor of the Grant Herald building. Is that correct? That is correct. You further stated that the footprints left at the scene of the crime were made by a size 8 shoe with Cuban heels and metal taps on each toe. Is that correct? That's right. People's Exhibit 1. A pair of black shoes identified by the defendant as his own. They're stamped size 8, Cuban heels, metal taps on each toe. Mr. Jones, you're acquainted with the fact that on the night of January 4th, someone scaled the ventilator pipe at the third floor of the Grant Herald building, forcibly entered the attic of the building, gained access to an adjoining suite of offices, and there burglarized a safe. I'm acquainted with that fact. Is it possible that someone else other than the defendant could have burglarized that safe? In my opinion, no. On what do you base your conclusion? I base it on the application of the law of probabilities to such a case as this. Would you explain that to the jury, please? First, um... Let's apply a set of figures to these facts. Let's say, conservatively, that one man in every hundred in this city wears a size 8 shoe with Cuban heels and metal taps on the shoes. And then, 
Let's say that one man in every hundred has red paint smudges on the soles of his shoes. Same color and same texture as the paint from the building. Uh, further, let's estimate that one man in a hundred also wears ten ribs to the inch, woven trousers, and a wool jacket woven twelve ribs to the inch. Let's also estimate that one man in a hundred carries a small piece of charred lath in his jacket. Then let's say that one man in a hundred carries in the cuffs of his trousers particles of plaster similar to the plaster in the attic of the Grand Herald building. What are the chances then that one man in this city, other than the defendant, could possess all six of these various items? That would be one chance in one trillion. Well, how do you arrive at that figure, Mr. Jones? Well, simply by multiplying 100 by itself six times over. You mean only one man in one trillion, other than the defendant, could have burglarized the safe on the third floor of the Grand Herald building? That's correct. One trillion. Can you give the jury something to compare that figure with? That's more people than have lived on Earth since the beginning of time. Lee Jones was the last witness to testify in the case of the state versus Conrad Buckley. For the rest of the afternoon, the defense lawyer and the assistant DA delivered their summations. The defense lawyer was eloquent and colorful. He spoke for more than an hour and threw up every possible smokescreen he could think of to disguise the facts of the case. The assistant DA reviewed again the six points of physical evidence clearly defined. At five minutes to five that afternoon, the case went to the jury. We were expecting a quick verdict. We didn't get it. The jury was locked up for the night, and we went home. The Superior Court, State of California, and for the County of Los Angeles is now in session. The Honorable John Edwards, judge presiding. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Yes, Your Honor, we have. Hand me the verdict. Read the verdict. Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles People versus Conrad Buckley. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant not guilty. No talking back there, please. So say you want to say all. Is this your verdict? It is. Record the verdict. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I've been a judge for 26 years. For the past 14 years, I've presided in this particular court. May I say now that this is the worst miscarriage of justice I have ever witnessed. After hearing your verdict in this case, I can arrive at only one conclusion. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, either you are innately dishonest or you're complete morons. Court's adjourned. As soon as possible, the district attorney's office began exploring the personal life and background of each one of the 12 jurors. They contacted their neighbors, their friends, their acquaintances. They checked back 10 years in the lives of every one of them. They found nothing. The jury was indifferent. They wouldn't follow the case. Well, all the facts were there, Lee. None of the jurors were fixed. The DA's office found out that much. Why wouldn't they follow the case? A lot of people think they're doing their city a big favor when they serve on a jury. Yeah. They figure all they have to do is sit in the jury box for a few days, mark a ballot as fast as they can, and then leave. Beats me. They pay the taxes. They pay for these trials. They can follow the technical case closely if they want to. A lot of them aren't that conscientious. 
They don't think it means money in their pocket, so they don't care. We went through hell on this thing. Four months to catch him, three months to prove him guilty. And the jury blew it. You want my opinion, Lee? I think it stinks. You don't have an opinion, Joe. You're a cop. The case of Conrad Buckley became just another item filed away with hundreds of thousands of others in the record bureau of the Los Angeles Police Department. Six days after he was acquitted, he left the city and a few weeks later was reported in Baltimore, Maryland. After that, he dropped from sight. Summer came, autumn, Christmas, New Year's. On Wednesday morning, Ed and I checked in for work as usual. What's the date, Ed? Wednesday, February 1st. Thank you. You might have got over that cold, Joe? Yeah, finally. How about your kid? Yeah, he's okay. Wife's got one now. Hi. Morning, Captain. Hi. Got a minute? Yeah. Cutter Printing Company was robbed last night. How much? There's the crime report. 14,500. Yeah, it's a big haul. You're most familiar. Climbed a drain pipe to the roof, kicked in a skylight. Yeah. Conrad Buckley's back in town. I think it might add up. Could be. Sounds like it. There's one sure way to make him. Put him in small words and big type. I don't know how to make it any more positive than the last time. I don't know if that Greek with a lamp ever found an honest man, but get the guy. Ed and I drove out to the Cotter Printing Company and spent the rest of the morning and most of that afternoon checking into the $14,000 safe burglary. We examined the office where the burglary took place and the smashed skylight where the thief entered. We traced his path from the time he got into the building to the time he left. No fingerprints, no leads. How many safe men you know that work like Buckley? Well, let's see. There's Hagen. He works about the same, but he's up at Q. Walters, he operates like Buckley. He's doing time, too. Anybody else? No, not that I can think of. All right, find Buckley. Find out where he lives, who his friends are, where he eats. Find out what he's doing. You want us to tail him? Give him plenty of room. When you get the dope on him, we'll have a squad of men tail him alternately. All right, where do we start? The Manchester's Bar, down on Central Avenue near 5th. When was he there last? Monday. First night he got in town. Might be his favorite spot. Okay. Anything else? I hear Buckley's learned a new trick since he's been away. Yeah? Carries a gun. <laughs> That night, Ed and I started down into the south end of the city to find Conrad Buckley. First stop was Comanche's bar. Buckley didn't show. The next night was the same. And the night after that, no sign. On the fourth night, at ten minutes past eight p.m., Saturday, February 4th, Ed spotted Buckley entering. We waited. At 25 minutes past midnight, Buckley came out the main entrance with a blonde woman on his arm. He walked unsteadily. The two of them got into a gray car and sat there talking. What's the license number, Joe? Nine Robert 702. Want to get a make? Yeah. Control one, request a rolling make in the three column. Nine Robert 702. Nine Robert 702. Roger 80K, stand by. KMA 367. Nice looking car. Yeah, if it's his. Might pan out if we're lucky. Control one to 80K, come in. 80K to control one, go ahead. 
Nine Robert 702, car registered to Mrs. Conrad Buckley, 939 South Norwich Road, Beverly Hills. 80K to Control 1, Roger. KMA 367. What does that prove? Proves he's supporting a new car and a wife. Let's find out how. a.m. We trailed Buckley and the blonde woman we figured to be his wife to 939 South Norwich Road in Beverly Hills. We waited. At 3 a.m., Ed called Captain Wisdom and a couple of men were sent out to relieve us. By Friday of that week, February 10th, we had his movements fairly well established. We turned all the information we had over to Captain Wisdom and he assigned a crew of eight men to tail the suspect constantly in alternate shifts. The trap was set. 6 p.m. Tuesday, February 14th. I'll get it. Friday talking. Yeah, Captain, what's up? Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Buckley, he's making a move. We left the city hall and drove out to the site of the stakeout near Buckley's home on South Norwich Road. Captain Wisdom was there waiting for us. He left his place alone. He was on foot. Bergen Marconi tailed him to a bar. That's where he lost him. And he hasn't come back to his place? Not yet. I could have hunt you well. His car's still there. Yeah. We can shake him down. If he's been out on a caber tonight, he should have whatever he stole with him. Uh-huh. Car there in the driveway? Yeah. Check the license. Uh-huh. Nine Robert 702, that's Buckley's car. There's somebody coming out of the house. That his wife? Looks like it. Does she know either one of you? No. Follow her. Yeah, let's go ahead. Okay. Can you see the door from here? Yeah, this is fine. Captain? So we move, let's sweat it out. The blonde woman entered the apartment house at 1261 Wilcox Avenue at 14 minutes past 11 p.m. At five minutes past midnight, she came out and got in her car. A man was with her. Buckley. Must be the hideout. You two follow them. When they get to the house, shake them down. What about you? I'll check the apartment. Meet you back at the office. Right. At 21 minutes past midnight, Ed and I pulled up at the Buckley home at 939 South Norwich Road. We waited until Buckley and his wife got in the house. Then we went in and shook them down. We found nothing. We searched the house, the garage, and the car. The same. Nothing. Yeah, all right. You can put your stuff away. Place is clean, Joe. Nothing. Right. And I tell you, I'm clean. You haven't got one thing on me. I'm clean. It's a nice car you're driving, Buckley. Is it yours? That's right. I like nice things. They cost money. What doesn't? When would you get back in town? 
Last week, why? What are you doing with your time? Morris Cabinet Company. I'm a journeyman carpenter. When do you work? Nights. Good job. Believe me, I'm legit. All right, you stay that way and we won't have any trouble. Ed and I left Buckley's house, drove back to the office and checked in with Captain Wisdom. He told us that he had talked with a manager of the apartment house at 1261 Wilcox Avenue. Buckley was renting apartment 7A in the building under the name of James E. Wilson. On the average, he used the apartment only once or twice each week. The rent was $75 a month. What'd you find in the apartment, Captain? He keeps two complete changes of clothes in the closet. First, the place is empty except for one thing, a set of burglary tools. Yeah. Found them under a false bottom drawer. Set of safe jimmies, small sledge, the works. Then he works out of the apartment, huh? He's getting cagey, or he thinks he is. After a job, he probably comes back to the apartment, gets rid of his work clothes, and figures he's pretty safe. Well, then all we have to do is keep an eye on that apartment. The next time he pulls a job, we grab him. That's right. The next time we pick him up, it's going to be for keeps. That depends on the jury, doesn't it? At 3 a.m. that morning, Wisdom ordered a stakeout at 1261 Wilcox Avenue. The stakeout on his home also continued. During the next week, the suspect was seen to come and go from his home, and on two occasions, he visited his apartment during the daylight hours. No suspicious moves on his part were reported. The stakeout went on. Five weeks later, on March 22nd, the safe in the offices of Butterfield and Crucian Wholesale Grocers was burglarized of $7,500. That afternoon, Wisdom, Ed, and I met with Lieutenant Lee Jones in the crime lab. It's cyclohexane, a coal tar product. Well, It's colorless and it's odorless. When it's rubbed into the surface of an object, it's invisible to the naked eye. Well, what about it, Lee? It's a crystalline hydrocarbon, slightly soluble in ether or alcohol. Uh-huh. Well, here, let me show you this cloth. I help you, Lee? Yeah, will you, Joe? There. Dust it on here. Now, can you see or feel anything at all? No. Seems to disappear. You can't feel anything. You can. Oh. Ed? No. No, nothing on it. Captain, you want to catch that light, please? Sure. Have a look. How about that? Seems to glow. Yeah. Hmm. Will this stuff rub awfully? Try it. Now look at your hands. Nothing harmful in that stuff? No. How long will this stuff stay on, Lee? Maybe as long as 24 hours. Only shows up under that ultraviolet lamp, huh? That's right. Well, does it work on everybody? It'll work on Buckley. Ten minutes later, Wisdom put in a call to the two men on stakeout at Buckley's apartment on Wilcox Avenue. They reported that the apartment was empty. Buckley hadn't been near it since early the day before. At 6 p.m. that night, Lee Jones, Ed and I went to the apartment, let ourselves in with a pass key, and went to work with two jars of cyclohexane. We dusted it on everything in sight on Buckley's clothes, his shoes, his hat, and on the set of burglary tools which we found in the false bottom drawer. We rubbed it in until it was invisible. We arranged everything exactly the way we found it. Then we went back to the office. Lee Jones had a portable ultraviolet light set up for immediate use. Wisdom alerted communications to pass along immediately all reports of burglaries throughout the city. We waited. At midnight, we went out in ships for sandwiches and coffee. The watch kept on. 
2.30 a.m. I got it. Wisdom. Yeah? Thanks. Harvard and Wilshire Boulevard. Safe job? Two of them. Call Lee Jones. I'll meet you downstairs. Right. What do you think? We'll let the lamp tell us. Bergstrom, keep the storefront clear. Ten feet on either side. Anything, Lee? You'll know in a minute. Okay, Bob. All right, we can try it. I'll get the light, Lee. house, Lee Jones directed the photographer to stay at the scene of the burglary and take photographs of the telltale cyclohexane prints and all other pertinent photographs for use in court. At eight minutes past 4 a.m., we walked into Buckley's living room. Now, look, this is kind of getting on my nerves. It's four in the morning. Ed, outlet's right down there. Right. Lose all that stuff. What's that you got? Okay, Joe, the light. What's this all about, anyway? Look at yourself. What are you doing to me? What is all this stuff? Like a Christmas tree. Yeah. I don't have to take this stuff. You haven't got anything on me. You had me in court once before, and you had to turn me loose. Yes, we had you in court, and I can tell you every move you made in that case. Yeah? You tell me if I'm wrong. You climbed the back of the Grand Herald building using some pipes as supports. You crawled across the roof on your hands and knees to the firewall. You raised up a couple of times to see if everything was clear. You went over the firewall, leaving impressions of your coat and trousers. One of the coat buttons was scratched, so you went over stomach down. You then went to the front of the building, walking in a crouched position to see if there were any police cars in the vicinity. Then you returned to the skylight. How am I doing? Keep talking. You removed the glass from the skylight, crawled through the entrance, kicked a hole through a plaster wall into the attic. You broke some of the charred laths so that you could crawl through the attic to an opening in the office of the Grant Herald building. Then you opened the safe and took out $1,250. Is that right? No, I took $1,350. Okay. You give me a couple of hours and I'll tell you what you did on this case. Here's your coat. Yeah. What about my clothes? They're all ruined. By the time you need them again, they'll be out of style. All right, come on. Let's go.
On October 15th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 84, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. The suspect was tried and convicted of first-degree burglary. Due to his previous convictions, he was sentenced to life imprisonment. solid episode revealing the police uh, being innovative and finding a way to trap a clever criminal. The Greek with a lamp was a reference to uh, Diogenes, who legendarily carried a lamp saying he was looking for a man or has been uh, translated as an honest man. It kind of came about indirectly, but this may be the best use of a 4th century B.C. philosopher in Dragnet. Of course, it's the only one still. Also, I love them naming a company Butterfield and Crucian. Butterfield was Herb Butterfield, the actor who played Lee Jones, also the commissioner on Dangerous Assignment. And Jack Crucian was one of those character actors who popped up everywhere and did a lot of dragnet, so they got memorialized in the script. The first part of the episode is one of those that's really divisive among Dragnet TV watchers. And while the 1960s series has many divisive episodes, I think that this may be the most uh, controversial uh, online anyway, of any of the 1950s TV episodes, and it centers around the trial. Many love the judge giving the jury what for, and others absolutely hated it. And then there was Lee Jones's testimony. Uh, there are many questions and challenges that 21st century people have about the, the testimony, particularly those odds that he gave of a trillion to one. By modern standards, there are two problems with uh, the odds he gave. First is what's known as the prosecutor's fallacy. To quote a succinct bit of Wikipedia, the prosecutor's fallacy involves assuming that the prior probability of a random match is equal to the probability that the defendant is innocent. There has been a lot written about the prosecutor's fallacy, and I'm not able to explain all of the statistical math and reasoning that goes into that uh, discussion. But it definitely makes for some interesting reading. I should also add that there is a similar defense attorney fallacy. The other problem is that Lee Jones was just on the stand spitballing odds without any necessary basis in fact. The odds of this are 100 to 1, and let's say the odds of that are 100 to 1, and let's say the odds of the other thing are also 100 to 1. Well, as he said, he was 
being conservative, uh, most likely, with many of these numbers. He was really just making them up. One of my favorite comments on this particular aspect of his testimony was, let's not just say, let's have some proof. If an expert in a modern courtroom were to uh, create a number like a trillion to one as the odds someone other than the defendant committed a crime, that could end up getting in trouble on appeal. Although, from what I read, the prosecutor could probably get away with making that sort of inference during closing arguments. And if you sit on the stand as an expert supposing random odds to reach that figure rather than something that's been scientifically established, that's going to be a real problem and most judges wouldn't allow it. And if they did, it could be an issue on appeal. However, that's no mark against this episode. By documenting how cases were investigated and uh, prosecuted, it reflects and captures the standards of uh, I guess in this case, 1949, not today's. And if some methods are flawed, it at least illustrates uh, that, and those who are interested can see how and why processes have changed or evolved. It also doesn't really reflect anything negatively about the characters. Lee Jones was just testifying according to his understanding at that time. And I think many of us have had jobs where we did one thing and then the procedures and processes changed and what we did in the past would not have been allowed going forward. And that's no judgment or reflection on us or on our professionalism or how we do our jobs. So we kind of have to be a little careful about that. I can understand how that scene might bother some modern listeners or viewers, but you do need to keep the times in perspective. The whole theory of the prosecutor's fallacy wasn't even developed until 1987. So, all right, well, now we turn to listener comments and feedback and, uh, had a comment regarding the special we played uh, for Police File from Ron uh, over on Spotify. He writes, I thought there was very uh, little imagination left to the audience. The music was too suspenseful for tracking down a counterfeiter. Just bad. But then I also got a comment regarding the same episode on YouTube. This one comes from Michael, who writes... I'm Australian and used to listen to this show as a youngster before TV swept away radio drama. Thanks so much and glad we played one that uh, you had some familiarity with. And then finally we have a comment regarding one of our replays. Uh, and this one comes from Honeybee regarding the horrible hamburger. I absolutely love anything with Vincent Price. Well, Thank you so much, and I'm glad you enjoyed that replay. Well, now it is time to thank our Patreon supporter of the day. And I want to go ahead and thank Neil. Neil has been one of our Patreon supporters since September of 2016, currently supporting the podcast at the shameless level of $4 or more per month. Thank you so much for your support, Neil, and that will do it for today. We will be back next Saturday with another episode of Dragnet. But join us back here on Monday with the next Adventures of the Falcon, where... Yes, Michael Waring? That's right. My name is Barney Murdoch, Style Center Dress Company. Want to hire you.
<laughs> I never was much good on hemstitching. All right, you've had your joke. Now may I come in? Yeah, sure. Thanks. They call you the Falcon or some such falderal, don't they? Oh, I've been called every kind of falderal in the book. Well, I'm not much for fancy names, but I understand you're sharp. Can deliver the goods. That's what I want. Or just what goods do you have in mind? I want you to find a man for me. What man? Name's Elliot Finch, bookkeeper. Worked for us until today. Didn't show up for work this morning, and his wife doesn't know where he is. Well, how much did he get away with? How'd you know about that? When the bookkeeper disappears and his boss rushes frantically to a detective... Good, you're on the ball. 30,000, Waring. 30,000 nice round simoleons. Hmm. Well, to coin a couple of cliches, Finch certainly believed in making hay. And, brother, that ain't hay. I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, do send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.